Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, Dr. Santosh here, pediatric infectious disease doc, researcher, etc. You want some happy news, Santosh? Oh my God, could I use some happy news? <laughs> this is a weird day. Yeah, I, I mean, politically out there, but also like the cases that I've seen today and stuff. Yeah, yeah, I could use all the happy news you can spare. So there has been a huge baby boom at Cuba's mm. National Zoo. Okay. But this is this is adorable because there are several species of exotic and endangered animals that basically used the pandemic to get it on. They were locked up with their partners. <laughs> and now a whole bunch of endangered animals are having a baby boom. And it yeah. is literally for that reason. Although... <laughs> <laughs> the, the stated explanation from the yeah. zoo is that uh, with all these zoos shut, the animals were calm as high volumes of visitors inhibit reproduction during a normal sure. year, which I guess is true. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I get that. Now, this is why we humans are really just, you know, we're, we're mammals, and it's it's a hundred percent true everything that you're saying about our wonderful furry and uh, scaly friends at the zoo, but a hundred percent true with babies during the pandemic as well, like human babies, <laughs> and, like you know they you know, they were getting it on because they was like, oh, what do you want to do? Oh, I don't know. What do you want to do? And then unfortunately, as as a kind of you know, kind of co-correlate with this, you know, the, the babies went up the number of babies and pregnancies and stuff, but also syphilis. I, <laughs> I open the show with baby animals and you go straight to syphilis. Yeah. Well, my friend, <laughs> no, I stopped. We're going to have to find, yeah. <laughs> we're going to have to find a way to get these two topics to merge, not syphilis per se, yeah, yeah. But medicine and animals. And no, not necessarily from lab research or testing. Uh, this week, we're going to go to the zoo. You belong in the zoo. <laughs> and if I don't say which one, they can't sue. Uh, so <laughs> very cute yeah this week we're going to talk about several different animals and how they have contributed to human medicine and healing but i do have to register one complaint that i had mentioned to you before the show which yeah, is yeah yeah you, while you all you lost mm -hmm. respect for one of your favorites a little I, bit a little bit a little yeah. bit yeah, I was looking through all these different animals, and while we're going to be real excited and there's going to be some surprising ones in store, there really weren't any so-called exotic animals that have contributed to human medicine. Like no uh, giraffes, no penguins have ever done anything at all for 
<laughs> advancing the field of human medicine. And uh, I think it's a little bit lazy. And I feel like at the end of this this episode, you will too. Get it together, giraffes. I mean, come on. Look at everything we uh, we we do for you. <laughs> I, I, I don't. What, what I I haven't done anything for for giraffes. Well, yeah. let's go ahead and uh, swing by the reptile house and the small mammal house, and and we'll talk about a few of the contributions made. Um, and then we'll get a little more exciting towards the end. S- starting off, this is one we've actually, I believe, mentioned before, but the Brazilian pit viper or the Brazilian Arrowhead Viper. You can go ahead and, and pull out your episode or pull out your copy of Zoo Books. Yeah, absolutely. And, and look it up for a picture. For those of you who <laughs> don't know what Zoo Books is, you are breaking my heart. <laughs> don't go breaking his heart, guys. Uh, they couldn't if they tried. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got to say, uh, I'm getting a little excited here. Are we going to be talking about anti-venoms, Josh? Because I know there's... Lots of snakes that, you know, contribute their venom, not, I mean, involuntarily in the hope of helping us make anti-venoms. Well, this actually isn't an anti-venom. It's the venom itself. Uh, oh, because okay. Because venom from this Brazilian pit viper was the basis for developing the very first ACE inhibitor, which is a group of oh. drugs used to treat high blood pressure and heart failure. ACE inhibitors, we have angiotensin-converting enzyme, which is a enzyme, a protein, uh, that breaks down this thing, angiotensin, and then that angiotensin goes into our kidneys and our blood vessels and helps raise our blood pressure. We think, Josh, mainly for the, you know, to, to actually help us retain water when we're dehydrated and stuff like that. Um, and so it's it's part of that renin-angiotensin system that keeps us from just peeing out a bunch when we're dehydrated. So this is a blocker for that, you know, when we have hypertension, we have high blood pressure, and you, have an, you take an ACE inhibitor like lisinopril, for instance, well, all the prills. Think, well, you may think about this, like why why would you look to a snake? To help regulate our blood pressure. Uh, <laughs> oh, when I when I look to a snake, it regulates my blood pressure, but it's like the <laughs> wrong way. Yeah, snakes need their prey to be still, right? No legs sure. means they're not running after it. No, they're not chasing anything down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that would be a, a neurotoxin usually. Okay, or you could simply mm. decrease blood pressure. A significant drop in blood pressure could be a very useful property for snake venom since, you know, that requires that they are essentially passed out while they're being digested. Now, oh, okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. They just like orthostatic, right? Like uh, you faint, boom, and that's it. And then you just swallow them slowly like the snakes do. Well, ultimately, after a significant number of intermediate steps, a molecule was isolated called bradykinin, uh, brady meaning slow, and kinin meaning motion? I think it's yeah, motion. yeah, yeah. Kinesis is motion. <laughs> um, and yeah, kinin yeah. meaning motion. <laughs> yeah. Shush you. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> and bradykinins block angiotensin-converting enzymes from working, which means they cause your blood vessels to dilate 
and therefore lower blood pressure. So it induces kind of a shock state. That's what we talk about, right, with shock, where you can't get your blood flow to the vital organs you need in order to keep you alive. So we have various reasons why this can happen. Your heart doesn't work properly. That's cardiogenic shock. But when your blood vessels get all floppy, right, they they don't actually hold tone and squeeze properly in order to distribute the blood where it needs to go, especially back to your heart, your lungs, and your brain, um, then yeah, that's vasogenic shock. Uh, And your blood pools in your extremities, no blood to your brain, and you fall down. Now, bradykinin potentiating factors were eventually developed into the drug captopril, which also helps preserve kidney function in diabetics. The reason ACE inhibitors are so good for diabetics is that same dilation of blood vessels. Diabetes tends to affect microcirculation. It's your vessels are more likely to clog in the teeny tiny areas, fingertips, toes, and of course, small vessels like in the kidney and the heart. Yeah, so yeah, if you the, have a drug that can dilate that, mm-hmm. basically you've put a few extra miles on those vessels. <laughs> and as always, as always, you know, you still got to, you know, overcome the things that are giving you that blood pressure. So you got to eat better and you got to exercise. But the ACE inhibitors can be a little bit of a stall. It can, it can stall the deterioration of the slow necrosis that you're undergoing because of, you know, the microcirculation cutting off in the meanwhile. But it's, you know, if you guys don't take care of yourself, it's just a stall. But oh, thank you yes. for the snakes. Yeah. Death by slow necrosis. <laughs> That's why it's the silent killer, right, Josh? That's what, you know, it's little tiny blood vessels. They get choked off, choked off, and you lose tissue, tissue, tissue. And then, boom, one day it's a stroke or a heart attack all of a sudden. Yeah. So uh, although the Viper has been around for many years, this drug from its venom launched in 1975 by Squib. Cute name, now part of bristol Myers Squib. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that that's a very oh look at the squib. Yeah, yeah. Uh, why has it got to be snakes? <laughs> well, another reason it's got to be snakes. Two very frequently used drugs used to treat heart attacks in the United States also come from snake venom. Uh, this one from a snake in the American Southwest, the dusky pygmy rattlesnake. That's not a thing. Stop making up words. You're just putting together words and throwing it in front of snake. You have access to Google image search until we get our act together and put this on YouTube. <laughs> Use this rattlesnake, sure. A pygmy, okay, tiny rattlesnake. And then like dusky, like, oh, you look kind of pale and, it's and venom. Its venom has this cute little small protein called disintegrin, which disintegrates blood platelets from aggregating and forming clots. Uh, oh, nice. Which, when you're trying to break down a clot that is causing a heart attack or, say, a stroke, you might find a very good use for a venom that can do this. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So this, okay, so this is a different, again, venom mechanism for the snake itself, right? Like, it's not just, it's not trying to help us prevent a stroke when it bites us. No, it's it's trying to make you bleed out. 
but little <laughs> did it know. <laughs> Can you imagine if you just had a snake? Is be like, hey, you know, how, how are you doing, Mister Johnson? Oh, I'm starting to get a little bit of a, you know, a taste of toast, like burnt toast. And that kind of a thing. And my left arm is going, no, it's like, oh yeah, yeah. Well, let me help you there. <laughs> you know? It's like a helpful little anti-stroke snake, just, well, you know, slithering around. The drug epitifibatide or integralin mimics oh, sure. the action of disintegrin and is used as an anti-clotting agent to prevent formation during heart surgeries or really several surgeries, but specifically cardiac. There's also a different snake, the Asian sand viper, that makes a protein called aerostatin that looks like it may be successful, so have some limited success in fighting different kinds of cancer. Uh, more on that to come, but it's from a pretty recent article in the Journal of Toxicology. So cool. You know, we've gotten chemotherapeutics, we've gotten anti-parasitics and antibiotics and so many, so many cool things from nature. I will say, Josh, it's not only that we have these amazing molecules that have just been evolved with time and, you know, that we can kind of grab these and utilize them for a different purpose, but it is so cool to think about a person you know, who is a, a scientist or maybe a naturalist who is sitting there going like, hey, that, that kills people. How does it kill people? By making them bleed out. And then instead of going like, ah, they actually go, huh, how, how could that be useful? Like that, that's a cool brain. So let's move on to the, well, let's move on to another corner of the reptile house. Okay. Now, here's one you probably haven't seen, the Gila Monster, or Gila Monster? Yeah, uh, depending on where, what part of the world you're from. But I think originally in Mexico, so the G with a H kind of a sound, so Gila, yeah. Okay, well, yeah. the Gila Monster, and I remember I had, there was some book I used to read as a kid, uh, like Gila Monsters are in the sewers, or some, I don't know, children's literature. Sure, sure. Uh, but it usually it's it's a fairly large lizard, um, and it scavenges for small eggs and animals. Spends most of its time underground, and is one of only two species of lizard on Earth that produce venom. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. So we've got lots of snakes out there that make venom. We've got spiders, but we even so, have a monkey. Yeah, yeah, we have a monkey. <laughs> that's true, but four-legged lizards like your normal you know desert lizard that you're talking about most of them aren't venomous they never really you know kind of put any evolution points into making venom well it's this venom that makes the gila monster a medical wonder oh okay very cool so there the gila monster is going to help us out just like the the snakes did mm-hmm so okay. Gila monsters are cold-blooded, so in mm -hmm. the winter, they have to hold very, very still. And okay. to save energy, it has to send signals to its body, like its gut, glands, pancreas, to stop being active. Then, when it wakes up in the spring, the venom will t liberate hormones in the body that tell all those organs to turn back on, start working, and get ready to eat. That is so cool. So this is a hibernation venom. 
It's a hibernation. So it's it's an attack venom, but it's it's a venom that's kind of spurs it on. It says, "Get your ass up! It's time to go hunting. Winter's over." <laughs> Yeehaw! That's such a weird way to wake yourself. <laughs> like you know, you or I used a alarm clock. Yeah, Josh. So what if we used a venom? <laughs> like you know, like we were Bane. But instead of the venom, like the Bane venom making us all muscly and stuff, it just... I got news for you, buddy. Everyone yeah. at Starbucks already does this. I never thought about that. Oh, no. Caffeine. Caffeine is like the Bane venom, but for waking up. Well, Dr. John Ang, an endocrinologist at Solomon Beerson Research Lab discovered this venom or this hormone venom in 1992 and he named it exendin 4 uh now he noted a couple studies from the earlier era of the 1980s who saw that venom in snakes and lizards could cause inflammation of the pancreas oh okay Yes. Which, where we know, is where insulin is made. But specifically, the Gila monster had developed this, uh, well, as we noted, venom that stimulates the pancreas, doesn't inflame it. And in fact, it was very similar to a hormone produced by humans responsible for increasing the production of insulin when blood sugar is high, known as GLP-1. Okay. Gotcha, gotcha. Very cool. Now... The reason GLP-1 is exciting in humans is that it only goes into effect when blood sugar is high. When blood sugar levels are normal, it's not telling your body to make insulin to bring sugar in. Um, The problem is that enzymes in the blood cause human GLP-1 to degrade very, very quickly. So if you were using it as a treatment for diabetes, it would have to be put in almost hourly, which I can imagine not a lot of diabetics would want to do. Yeah, yeah, that would be now. Nowadays, we have, you know, the insulin pumps, so you can actually use a short-acting insulin and just give it as a continuous infusion subcutaneously. But prior to that, you know, when you had to use the individual needles and stuff, yeah, like you're having to live meant every hour you would have to jab yourself and stuff that's uh that's very morbius josh that's morbid time oh oh you wait we're gonna talk about morbius <laughs> in this year's comic book medicine episode are we re- are we gonna morbid time that's awesome <laughs> yeah we're going we're going full morb um but but back to uh, dr ang he noted that Exendin 4 was very similar to GLP-1, but rather than breaking down within the hour, it would last up to, you want to guess how many hours? Uh, within the hour, and this is, uh, you this know. This is Exendin 4. Right, and, and this is to help a Gila monster, uh, Gila, Gila monster kind of wake up and stuff. So maybe that takes like half the day, like maybe like, you know, the wake. He named hours, it like Exendin 4. Oh, oh, right. Yeah, four hours. <laughs> <laughs> Don't overthink it, Santosh. I'm, You're I'm a sorry. scientist. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I... <laughs> now, 
traditionally, hospitals, research institutions, universities would all be clamoring for this kind of marketable science, at least if it's thought to have commercial value. Look, here's something we can use for diabetics that lasts longer and is all natural. It's an organic lizard. Uh, However, Dr. Eng was working for the Veterans Administration and was not interested in patenting his discovery because it didn't address a, ready for this, veteran-specific ailment, you know, like spinal cord damage or another combat injury. Since everybody can get diabetes and not uniquely or specifically veterans, the VA said, eh, not interested. And I'm sure, by the way, there is no diabetics in the veteran population. Come on now. (laughs) So the Gila Monsters tricks now help thousands of diabetes sufferers, but Dr. Eng basically funded uh, the money and several things to get the patent himself, but he still couldn't get the drug made because, you know, one single person cannot fund the research, development, distribution, and production of an entire drug for a mass population. It's simply inconceivable. Right, right. You keep Uh, using that word. (laughs) (laughs) but luckily but luckily he eventually got into some secret colonel kfc style agreement with eli Lilly, and they were able to to make it now uh in 2005 the fda approved bayetta which is more directly derived from gila monster venom and it's injectable and helpful that people with type 2 diabetes maintain healthy glucose levels, also known as exenatide from Xendin 4. Pretty neat, <laughs> huh? <laughs> I love that. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's. I'm getting a little tired of snakes and lizards. Uh, <laughs> you want to go, uh, you want to come off the scalies and maybe go for something maybe a little more cute and cuddly? I want to save cute and cuddly for the end because nobody is expecting cute and cuddly, especially after I trash talked to the giraffe. <laughs> Same to the penguin. And sure. remember, we're trying to avoid the kind of specific invasive research, although this next story is going to border on it. So we're going to start with the nicer one. Okay, that's fair. As we right. leave the reptile house, you may notice some amphibians on the way out. And uh, there's a group of frogs, African clawed frogs, to be specific, that during the 1940s were sold in huge numbers as a pregnancy test. (laughs) Now, I should say there may be astute listeners right now because you're going to mention the uh, the genus of these frogs. And may I, Josh? Is it okay? Sure. So, uh, yeah, Xenopus slavis. And now you you guys may actually see Xenopus in many, many, many fields of scientific literature. So, Josh, the single cell eggs that they make, so the actual, the, the frog eggs, the Xenopus eggs, are very useful in, you know, when you're actually doing science on conductance across cell membranes because they're basically like gigantic cells. 
So when you're talking about flux of things like sodium and potassium and electrical charge across the cell membrane, uh, xenopus eggs are a standard uh, research model in this kind of a field. So they've actually donated in the lab as well, but you're going to talk about something different, yeah? Yes. Gotcha. So in the first half of the 20th century, around the 1940s and 50s, if a young or I guess older lady wanted to know if she was pregnant, she'd go to the doctor. He Mm -hmm. would uh, get a urine sample. Yeah. He would then take that urine into the back, uh, look for the frog cage and inject the woman's urine under a female frog skin. And If the woman was pregnant, it would cause the amphibian to produce eggs. So this was first uncovered by the biologist Lancelot Hogben. Great name. <laughs> oh, I I hope he found someone to love him and have kids and everything. Because going through life as Lancelot Hogben... Just trying to introduce yourself. <laughs> that's a tough, that's well, an uphill climb right there. This pregnancy test became known as the Hogben test, and he discovered it in the 1920s. Okay. Uh, f- so from 1920s all the way through 1940s, through two world wars, women were finding out they were pregnant via frog. Uh, now, the frogs were kept at four different centers in the United Kingdom, but... In a hilarious Simpsons-like twist, a number escaped their clinical confines (laughs) and uh, took over a section of South Wales. Oh, (laughs) became just like ready to go, invasive species. Off you go. (laughs) Okay, but so Hogman at least had some power nerd vibes going on. I'm sure somebody dug that. Well, one doctor wrote to Hogman's colleagues, here's how successful the test was. Um, Thank you for your report on the pregnancy test on Mrs. X. You may be interested to know that of one GP of many years standing, one specialist gynecologist and one frog, only the frog was correct. Uh (laughs) Oh, that's absolutely brilliant. That's so much fun. And... It's so cool kind of fast forwarding through this because ultimately we had to figure out the chemical reason behind this, which was that beautiful hormone, right? Human chorionic gonadotropin. And so nowadays when we talk about a pregnancy test, it's the same thing, really. We're we're just, instead of using a frog to detect it, we're just using, um, you know, like a stick well, speaking of piano stick, Santosh, did you ever watch I Love Lucy? All I remember is the one with the uh, the, the 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 one with Lucy and Ethel where they're trying to do the chocolate factory, and, you know, <laughs> but it's going by way too fast. And <laughs> they're trying to eat it and stuff it and everything. I, I know that's way off topic, but that's the one that I know about. Well, for those of you who are I Love Lucy fans and. Uh, Ask your parents or... Yeah, yeah. You uh, you got Lucy and her uh, husband, Ricky Ricardo, and then you've got her neighbors, and they get into all sorts of weird sitcom-y hijinks. And in the I Love Lucy episode, when Lucy finds out she's pregnant with little Ricky, she telephones uh. a friend, and she excitedly reports, Ethel, the rabbit died. <laughs> 
Is now, that there, is, there is a certain segment of our listener population who yeah. are nodding knowingly because sure, this phrase sure. this phrase <laughs> has quite a lot of significance. Yeah. Uh, now, you you were trying to jump in and mention something like this before, but yeah, yeah. rabbits were yeah. also used as a pregnancy test to considerably more permanent effect. That, oh, no. I, so why I don't was... you tell us? Why don't you tell us about the rabbit <laughs> test from the 1940s? I don't understand about the death part, and I think you're going to teach that one to me. But human chorionic gonadotropin is very well preserved evolutionarily um, along the line of actually vertebrate, you know, animals. So. It can cause these, uh, you know, stimulation of reproduction, you know, even if you take it from a human and you give it to another animal, just like you said with the frogs. What I know about is that you can take, you know, urine, which contains HCG when a woman is pregnant in proper quantities. And if you inject it into the rabbit, they go into estrus or they go into heat. So you can see them behaviorally acting like they're ready to mate I don't know why they die in this case, though. Well, they die because, one, you have a terrible misunderstanding of how the process works. The rabbit test was based on an earlier test known as the AZ, developed by Selmer Ashheim and Bernard Zondek. When urine from a woman in the early months of pregnancy was injected into immature female mice, the ovaries would enlarge and show follicular maturation which was considered pretty reliable with an error rate of less than 2%. Uh, The rabbit test by researchers Freedom and Lapham was essentially identical, but replaced the mouse with a rabbit. And a few days after injection, the only way to determine if there is follicular maturation is to dissect the animal and look at the size of the ovaries. Not the rabbit died, but they killed the rabbit. Well, the phrase was based on a common misconception by the public that people assumed the injected rabbit would die only if the woman was pregnant. In fact, all rabbits used for the test died as they had to be surgically opened to examine the ovaries. Got it. Okay, so you wouldn't observe the rabbit's behavior. You would have to euthanize it to actually, you know, do an autopsy, essentially. Uh, Nowadays, we probably could do, I mean, just be like an ophorectomy on a rabbit. So presumably you could do it without killing it. But the frog (laughs) test, the hog bend test, Lancelot came to our rescue because no frogs had to die in the discovery of pregnancy. That's kind of nice. Yeah, you just waited for them to actually just lay eggs, meaning that they were mature. In places where access to medical care may be restricted, in terms of if you're wondering if you're pregnant, get a frog. Pee on it. (laughs) No, no, don't pee on it. Stop (laughs) it. No. No, um, but no. This was a, this was a reliable early test that actually could be carried out with very limited degrees. So while we have much better lab-based assays now, um, certainly in areas that are developing or underfunded, a version of this could still be in use. Yeah, yeah, it is. That's kind of a beautiful thing. Just like you said, Josh, that error rate is really so low. If you want to be scientific about it, you probably should use positive and negative controls 
which is the lines that you see on the pregnancy test? So pee on three frogs. No, stop it. <laughs> if all of them lay eggs. Oh, for the love of God, no. <laughs> oh, boy. But I, why? Yes. <laughs> this is so bad. No, no, no. I think that we're coming to... Oh, this is so awful. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to stop because I think everybody gets it at this point. And anything more that I'm going to say is going to prompt you to use the phrase pee on a frog. So I'm just going to stop. <laughs> I, I just couldn't figure out which R. Kelly joke to go for. So I'm going to move on to the next animal. Yeah. Let's move on to our next animal. Um, uh, wait, are we staying amphibious? Well, well, we're we're starting to move up to the something fishy now oh you know there is no such thing as a fish (laughs) great show (laughs) um let's talk about calcitonin oh okay yeah 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 absolutely i mean we got pro calcitonin inflammatory marker and then calcitonin made by our our thyroid just like that has a lot of functions in the body. Humans do make calcitonin. It's a hormone that inhibits bone loss. It helps keeps your calcium tone in. Uh, <laughs> I like it. I like it. Yeah. It's uh, those, I-, I can't remember, Josh, is this uh, thyroid gland, right? It's the C cells in our thyroid gland. The thyroid, we think about thyroid hormone, but there's this other one, you know, that promotes our bone growth and, you know, well, it doesn't go, promote it doesn't promote growth, but it inhibits loss. Gotcha. And and you know, it's important because as we grow older and older, especially women postmenopausal, you get bone loss. So you start to get osteoporosis. And the rate of bone loss can increase also in people with conditions like Paget's disease. So oh, yeah. having extra calcitonin can help keep those bones tone with and prevent them from suffering additional rapid loss and promote density. Now, here's the thing. Fish don't have thyroid glands. No such thing as a (laughs) thyroid gland in a fish. (laughs) Oh, poor fish. Yeah, they can't regulate their metabolism the way we can. But they do produce calcitonin hormones to regulate their own calcium levels from an endocrine gland in their neck a very easily accessible gland in their neck on a fish whose other parts are used for their deliciousness. Uh, (laughs) Okay. So you're filleting your fish and you're going to, you know, have some delicious uh, salmon for lunch and stuff, but you know, you're able to take out the. (laughs) I'm, I'm probably exaggerating a little and you can't quite make calcitonin at home on the grill. Uh, it does require it does require a few more steps, but the synthetic right. version of calcitonin from coho salmon, the okay. calcitonin salmon, is what makes it into the final medical product for people with calcium regulation disorders. So, if you are taking calcitonin, you are using salmon parts. Oh, okay, gotcha, gotcha. Let's talk about one other aquatic creature, and then we'll end with something fuzzy. A surprise, oh. <laughs> a surprise animal guest. Oh, yay. That's so much fun. But I, I'm so happy that, you know, salmon can help us prevent bone loss. That's pretty awesome. Uh, so 
every person in the world today who receives vaccines, antibiotics, pacemakers, or any implanted medical device, you have had your safety insured by the blue blood of the horseshoe crab. Oh, sweet. And, and <laughs> all right, this is slightly nightmare fuel, but go ahead and take a quick pause and Google horseshoe crab for those of you folks who have never seen it. Um, it's, it's a little scary, but actually they're quite harmless. They, they, they look creepy, but they're, they're not going to hurt you. The horseshoe crab basically reached its evolutionary peak 200 million years ago and much like a neck tattoo, took one look at itself and said, I'm good. I've gone far enough. <laughs> it is. And I think we have discussed this before, Josh, on our podcast, but it's definitely a science meme that everything becomes crab. <laughs> but the slow carcinization of the universe. Of the universe, yeah. Crabs are a really good evolutionary endpoint. They survive really well for a number of reasons, but these are living fossils because they have been around for so, so long because they've not needed to change to adapt to any of the crazy changes that's happened in their environment. They have survived just fine in this shape for hundreds of millions of years. And changing into crabs is universal. Want proof? Crab nebula. <laughs> ah! Uh, so <laughs> the horseshoe crab has blue blood, not uh -huh. royal, actually blue. And, yeah, it's bright blue. And it gets that color from copper in its system and pretty special properties, which we love to use in medicine. Because yeah, people, began, people began to notice that if the crab got wounded and that wound got infected, the blood would start gunking up and coagulating. Oh, oh okay. Very neat. Cool. And that's exactly how it's used today. There's a protein in the blood called the limulus amoebocyte lysate, or LAL. Not mole, <laughs> lal. Wow. Uh -huh. Yeah, absolutely. Which reacts to microorganisms and can detect endotoxins that cause fever and can be fatal, like Shiga toxin or C. diff toxin or a wide variety. Any uh -huh. contamination of a blood sample and scientists will see the blood react. And having been alive for 200 million years, the crab has a pretty big library of microbes that it can recognize. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that recognition, you know, it has to be fairly broad in terms of being able to say, oh, that's an external thing. We need to trap it, clog, all that kind of a thing. So it it needs to be what's called kind of a, a general use or an all-purpose use uh, type of a molecule. It, it can't be narrow in its scope. But it is basically used to uh, prevent contamination in blood samples. Uh, it is used to detect infections. It has a wide variety of uses, so much so that just a pint of horseshoe crab blood collected from living crabs who are then returned to the wild. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So we actually, you know, Josh, how you go and like you donate your blood and then you get a cookie and some orange juice? And then so, you Santos, you know how you're at the beach and yeah. <laughs> five guys in a van show yeah. up okay. and take you 
to a blood donation center. <laughs> I and think then I at the sh- end, and then at the end, having yeah. satisfied themselves, throw you back out on the streets yeah, to be just like, like wandering like and confused. <laughs> yeah. Now I, I imagine think- <laughs> that instead of them paying you for blood donation, they then sold your blood at fifteen thousand dollars a pint to academic institutions. <laughs> And maybe we're on the same page. <laughs> this is like a a, a a rather weird, like ripoff of the movie Blade, uh, or <laughs> or perhaps again a weird ripoff of Morbius. Yes, I know we keep coming back to this movie, people, but it's important. Now let's <laughs> move on. Let's move on to our final animal. Another oh, cheerful yeah. one. <laughs> we should mention first, yeah, why do we keep doing this? A lot for the reasons why we've harvested from the other animals that we're talking about. This lysate is so all-purpose and useful and readily available on the beach like this that we have not been able to mimic it by making a synthetic version. That's why. So uh, the crab people tell legends of us, the vampires <laughs> above the ground. In yeah. fact. We're the villains in their version of The Little Mermaid. <laughs> Do you think that, like, you know, and, and there's some crabs out there that have never been abducted. And, you know, they're like, oh, there goes that, like, weird conspiracy theory. <laughs> Guy's like, oh, I've been abducted. You know, now, uh, the last animal, although yeah. we'll come back to tour more of the zoo some other time. Oh yes, maybe if, maybe if penguins get their act together, I'm eyeing them too. Okay, um, gotcha. But let's move over to small river mammals or small river creatures. Okay, and okay. You may not be aware of this, but the beaver. Oh, this is one of my favorite ones, and it's gross. The beaver has a couple scent glands called castor sacs, yeah. and <laughs> it can secrete a a product known as castoreum used uh-huh. by the animals in nature to mark their territory. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to do my usual Santosh thing to you, Josh. I'm sorry. Castorium. Castoretum. Okay. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> can I... Fine. Castorium yeah. can also be used to stimulate the beaver's partner during the estrus period. And mm-hmm. apart from the numerous aromatic components, which are also used to flavor everything from ice cream to <laughs> alcohol. Yeah, yeah. He said flavor. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can rewind and he- listen to it again, but I guarantee you it's going to say flavor. <laughs> the fluid also contains a pretty considerable quantity of salicylic acid more commonly known as aspirin, has antiseptic, decontaminating, febrifugal, and analgesic properties, can be used against rheumatic pains, acne, and warts. And this has made it a pretty popular medicine in the ancient world. Okay, very cool, very cool. Now, this was so exciting that I actually found a paper... In Polish, admittedly, so I needed Dr. Santosh's help for translation. Um, <laughs> okay. 
we're going to dedicate a whole mini-sode just to the medical history of the beaver, what it was thought it could do, what we have learned it could do, and the many ways it was put to medical use. So I simply wanted to mention it as a special guest animal, but it's got its own spinoff coming. Yeah, absolutely. And I know what you're thinking, a beaver. (laughs) Well, damn! (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Now, happy Father's Day. (laughs) Uh, GRAS, right? It's generally regarded as safe uh, as a food. (laughs) And... Yeah, but that it's, was it's, that was a scientific terminology, by the it, way. It, it totally was, yeah, and and it, but it is in all kinds of flavoring stuff like that. Um, as of recently, because we have other sources of salicylic acid and other ways to manufacture it more cleanly, we're not going around, you know, milking those anal glands uh, for our aspirin and whatnot. Uh, but for perfumes and flavoring, just like you said, uh, ice cream and honey, <laughs> also to contribute to the flavor of cigarettes, Josh, if you didn't think there was more gross stuff in those things. We will save for a future episode uh, the remainder of our zoo therapy. Um, but I will mention, just as a little teaser, when we go back into the more ancient world, we can look at some of the medical applications that have been used from time immemorial, including honey, wax, fish, and of course, beaver. So that's it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links for further reading. Now, as a just a tip this week, it's been a while since I think I've brought it up, but okay. since we did talk about zoos the whole time, I have to mention my favorite zoo in the world. Now, I know we started the episode with the Cuba Zoo, but sure, sure. Yes. I love the Singapore Zoo because not only do they have delightful animal enclosures and different versions of the zoo, one you can travel through at night after the regular day zoo is closed so you can see all the nocturnal animals when they're active. So that's right. After zoo partying, uh, you can also follow around the zookeeper on a snack route where he'll go to animals that traditionally spend a lot of time lounging around and give them a mid-afternoon cut of steak or some other red meat to, again, get them active and moving for the viewing audience. And several (laughs) of the smaller, more harmless animals are provided with platforms above their enclosures and wires running between enclosures so they can look at other animals too. That's right. There are monkeys who can walk around the zoo on the skyways looking down at you as well as the other animals. Sure. Okay. Oh, so cool. So cool. So if you ever get a chance to head to Singapore, check that out. This show was produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. And until next time, Santosh, you want to play us out? Get your shot, wash your hands, pee on a frog. And after you've done all the happy travels. (laughs) And as always, happy travels. Bye, guys. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs>